You know, footprints are, um, are pretty temporary. They're pretty fleeting. If you're walking along the shore of the ocean and, uh, and you leave footprints in the sand, it's not long before the, the, the crashing waves just simply erase them. They're here and they're gone. They're kind of like our lives. Uh, our lives are pretty temporary. They're pretty fragile. They, they're lived here for a short period and then they're gone. And in comparison to human history, they just fade off into the distance. But when we're here, there is a difference, and we do leave our prince behind for others to follow. Sometimes we think they're not important, but actually, actually, if you can come up with a good shoe print or a good footprint, and you give it to Abby Shudo, our ducky, with NCIS, why, they can solve a murder mystery and bring the criminal to apprehension. You know what I mean? Sometimes footprints have led somebody to safety in a blinding snowstorm, but undoubtedly footprints have led the way and charted the course of human history. Science and archaeology has determined what they believe to this point are the oldest footprints that have ever been found, human footprints that have ever been found. They are located on the side of a volcano in southern Italy. There are 27 steps in all. It's sort of a Z pattern. Science says that they're 350,000 years old. Now, some people don't think that humanity has even been here that long, but regardless of the dating of those, if, they, if those are indeed the oldest footprints ever, don't you wonder who it was that left those footprints? What were they doing? What did they look like? What language did they speak? Did they have family? Were they escaping impending doom as they came down the mountain, or were they going up the mountain just for a, for a stroll. What did they believe about God? Who were those people? In a very real sense, we are following some faithful and valuable footprints of those who in the kingdom have paved the way for us to follow. I look back to the 1960s, specifically 1962, when this church, this congregation, in the month of December, was celebrating their very first beginning. And here we celebrate in December the 50th anniversary of that. But boy, have things changed since 1962. When I look at the pictures, I actually really like the cars that were on the street in 1962. But clothing fashions have changed quite a bit. I thought eyeglasses had changed a lot, but I'm beginning to see some of those styles come back into vogue again. When I was a kid in 1962, uh, we didn't have a, a rotary dial phone yet. I mean, the, the dial was on the phone, but it didn't work. We still used an operator. You had to pick up the phone and ask the operator to connect you with the person that you wanted to talk to. We had a three-digit phone number, 648. It was a little bit later before the rotary dial came in. 1962, when this church was born, I was in the second grade. We, I was getting ready for Christmas in the second grade when this church met for the first time. In the second grade in elementary school, the day before Christmas break, we'd have our gift exchange in the morning, and then in the afternoon, we would all flood out into the main hallway of the elementary school, and every grade would sing a specific Christmas carol. I don't remember what it was in the second grade that we sang. I just knew I couldn't wait to be a sixth grader because the sixth graders sang the finale, which was the 12 days of Christmas. Little did I know as I stood there in the hallway of that elementary school singing a Christmas carol that there was a church, a brand new church in Bloomington, Indiana that would greatly impact my life and my family's life. And little did this congregation know that there was a sixth grade or a second grade boy with a burr haircut in Huntingburg, Indiana that would someday preach here for them. But God knew 
And God was orchestrating the events, not only of those moments, but all the moments before and all the moments that will come, the good as well as the bad, the joyful as well as the heartbreaking, to bring this congregation to this moment and of all the moments that we will celebrate in the future. Now, we can only celebrate what is and what has been. We can only anticipate the moments that will be. But all of the moments, past, present, and future, are filled with the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Now, we don't often quote from the book of Jude. It may even have been a long time since you've read from the book of Jude. But I want to read you a passage from the book of Jude. This verse, verse 3 of this single chapter book, reads like this. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. To contend for, to stand behind, to defend, to stand up for, to fight for the faith. I look out at this group of people this morning and I think, what, what, what is it that brings us together? Why are we here? We, we are in many ways a varied group. We're not just different ages, but we're from different generational perspectives and views. We are a group of different races and cultures. We all have different tastes and embrace different styles. We don't always agree. Sometimes we have to agree to disagree. And I've learned through the years that it is simply impossible to please everybody. Some think the building is too warm, others think it's too cool. Some think the lighting is too dim, others think it's too bright and flashy. Some think the very same song that they've just sung is too loud, and others think it's too soft. We're too contemporary for some, we're too traditional for others. Some are too involved and some aren't involved enough. Some don't care much for the sermons, others have good taste. You can't... <laughs> You can't please everybody. <clears throat> but there is one thing. There is one thing that we have in common. It is what brings us here this morning. It is the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. We may be on different parts of this faith journey, entering at different points in our life, but we're on the same journey, just like in a marathon race. Some runners finish way ahead of the pack. Some runners finish way behind the pack. But everybody that crosses the finish line has stayed the course. We are in a marathon. Some have finished ahead of us. Some will finish behind us. But it is important that all of us stay the course that we keep the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Now, we've heard from Martha this morning, and I hope you'll get a chance to meet Joyce one of these Sundays when you're here as well. But I want to celebrate who we are right now, not just what we were 50 years ago, but who we are right now. And so I'd like you to do something with me. I'd like everybody to stand. Will you please just stand where you are? <clears throat> And I want you to look around and see everybody who is here. Look up into the balcony and you, in the balcony, look down and, and see everybody here. We are a family together. This, this is home. This is a spiritual home for those of us who are here. And perchance, <clears throat> this would be your first Sunday here. Some of you, 
might just be here for the very first time. And, and if you're thinking, you know, I kind of like this place. I believe this place could make a good church home. We, we might want to come back. Can I tell you that's music to my ears? And can I also tell you that you are as valuable and important to us as those who have been here since it began? Because it doesn't matter where you entered the story. This is your story too. Because each one of us brings into this story a heritage that builds on the past and leaves a heritage that will build for the future. So take a look around. I am grateful to be part of such a grand family. Thank you for being who you are. Now I'm going to ask you to sit down in this order. <clears throat> so stay standing until it fits who you are. Okay? If you started coming in the year 2010 or since then, go ahead and sit down. Now, that's a sizable group that just sat down after only having been here a couple years. If you started coming in the year 2000 or since then, go ahead and sit down. That's the last 12 years of the life of this congregation. How about if you started coming in 1990 or since then? Go ahead and sit down. Now, by far, the bulk of the people have, of this family have come in the last 22 years. Who you see standing have been here for longer. Those you see standing have made an incredible difference. Now, let, let's see how far back we go. If you have been coming since 1980 or later, sit down. Okay, I see a couple back here, and I cannot see in the shadows. Letha, is that, is that you back there? Okay, I see in the... Uh, I can't, who, who else is back there? Julia, is that you? Okay. Uh, anybody up in the balcony? Dave Pruitt up in the balcony. I see three people who have been from sometime in the 80s, and Letha was here before that. 66. All right. You all can go ahead and, and be seated. What, what I want you to see is that we are a family of generations, people who have been around here for a long time. Now, let me, let me, but but that's, that's not what brings us together. It just is the fact that we can come together because we share a common faith. Now, let's do this. If you grew up, if you were born and raised in Monroe County, stand up. I want to see how many Monroe Countyans we have here this morning. Okay. All right, very good. Go ahead and sit down. If you grew up in Indiana outside of Monroe County, I want to see how many Hoosiers that we have here this morning. All right, look at, wow, that's a, that's a large number. Okay, you can go ahead and sit down. If you grew up in the Midwest, but, but outside of Indiana, stand up. I want to see how many Midwesterners we have here this morning. Fairly good number of Midwesterners. Okay, you folks can go ahead and be seated. If you grew up in the U.S., but outside the Midwest, stand up. Look at that. From around the country. Okay, you won't be seated. If you were born outside the United States of America and are here this morning, please stand up. Look around you. I just love the fact that it's not just about Monroe County, it's about the world. <laughs> huh. 
What brings us together is not how old we are or how young we are. What brings us together is not where we have come from. What brings us together is the faith once and for all entrusted to the saints. I love the fact that this church is made up of people from different generations and different cultures and different walks of life and different languages because it makes me feel like we have a taste of heaven so that when we get home, the celebration will be even that much greater. Last week, I talked about our mission was to reach out beyond these walls to touch as many people as possible. But the scriptures also give us indication of what's supposed to happen inside these walls as we treat one another as we're supposed to. So listen to this great passage from the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Did you catch the tenacity of that declaration? Let us hold unswervingly to the hope, not a hope, but the hope that grows out of the faith. These are days that matter. We must hold unswervingly to our hope in Jesus Christ. There'll be moments when you'll, um, when you'll feel like throwing in the towel. There'll be moments when you'll question, is this stuff for real? I mean, is this faith business really real? In those moments, don't let down your guard. You stay the course. Hold unswervingly to the hope that we share. The hope that the end of our stories will be even greater than the beginning of our stories or anything that happens in the middle of our stories. I know there were tough times in the early days of this congregation. Those 17 people started a church with $50. It was hard work, but they never gave up. When Elsie and I came in January of 1981, the church had been through a pretty difficult time. Attendance was running 80 people. They weren't meeting their weekly budget of some $750, which, by the way, they didn't tell me until after I'd signed on the dotted line and came. <laughs> but that's okay. That group of people was tenacious. They, they, they held on they were determined that no matter how bad things got, they were not going to let the doors of the church close. And because of their tenacity, you're here today. I'm here today. None of this would have been possible without them holding on tight to that hope. Our vision shorthand verse, yes to love, is basically an extension of verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. When we come together, it is first and foremost to lift our worship before God. God, by the way, remember on Sunday morning is the audience. We're not. What we do, what we say, what we sing, what we talk about, preach about, pray about, God is the audience. That's our first priority in coming together. But we also come together to help challenge and motivate one another to acts of love and good deeds. That's what the spur on means. Whenever I watch one of our Yes to Love videos, I am motivated to do more myself. Whenever I hear someone's testimony about what they experienced while serving Christ, it makes me want to do a better job in serving Christ. You see, that's why we've come together this morning. That's why family is so important, because we motivate and challenge one another to love and good deeds. But one of my favorite themes of Scripture is what we see in verse 25. 
Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Oh, on those discouraging, dismal, disheartening days of life, how we need some encouragement. And I'm here to tell you, everyday life can be disheartening. Did you hear about the man who left the Midwest for a vacation in the Bahamas? His wife was planning to fly down the following morning and join him in the Bahamas, but she stayed behind on that, on that day to just tie up some loose ends at home. And when the man arrived in the Bahamas, he thought, well, I better email my wife, let her know I made it. And, and so he wanted to uh, just confirm that he'd arrived and was getting ready for the, the next day, but he mistyped, he mistyped her email address, as we have all done. We know how that goes. And instead of the email going to his wife, it went to a grieving widow whose husband had just recently passed away, and when she opened her email and read the message, she passed out. This is what it said. Sweetheart, I just checked in. Everything is prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to being with you again, your loving husband. P.S. Sure is hot down here. <laughs> <laughs> now that's discouraging by anybody's definition, I'm here to tell you. One of the most important virtues we find in Scripture is this call to encouragement. The church is designed to be a haven for the wounded and a hospital for the sick. The church needs to be a place where people can be lifted up, not beaten down. In the New Testament, the word encouragement is found 109 times. The Greek word is parakaleo, and it means to come alongside of in order to give aid. Sometimes it's translated urge. Sometimes it's translated exhort. Sometimes it's translated comfort. But it always describes the function of where another believer encourages or builds up a different believer in the faith. Encouragement like we use it most of the time is not biblical encouragement as we see it here. Our encouragement is, boy, that's a nice car. I like that. Or, well, that's a beautiful dress you're wearing today. Or, boy, that was a great last second shot to win the game. Now, that's encouragement of a sort, but it's not descriptive of biblical encouragement. Encouragement in the New Testament refers to what believers say or do to help someone else in the faith become a stronger Christian. It refers to our responsibility to equip and develop and mature and nurture one another in the body. You see, God did not design the Christian life to be a solo act. You and I are in a lifelong struggle with the power of sin, which is at odds with God. And to suggest that you can be spiritually strong all by yourself is at best to be naive. God's plan from the very beginning included this body we call the church. And while God saves you individually, he saves you into community so that we have a family that will encourage us. Not everything that happens in the church is an encouragement. I think back to the <laughs> early days of the church here. And when, when, when the church was meeting at its location down the road uh, on Winslow there, the, the building was much smaller. And, and right here in the second row on these two corner seats on my right-hand side when I was preaching is where one of our older couples always sat. 
Raymond and his wife, and, and Raymond was a, a wonderful man, he had a, a, a genuinely tender heart, but he had kind of a gruff exterior, and he was a large man. He was, you know, big, and, and, and his shoulders were broad, and he kind of wore this scowl, and they always sat there. Well, you know what happened. One Sunday morning, we had new people that came, and they didn't know that that pew was already taken, um, and so they sat there. Okay, they sat right down there, and I saw it happening. Uh, and Raymond and his wife came in, and he stopped at the end of the pew, and he said, those are our seats. <laughs> and so the lady and her two children got up, walked out that end of the pew, out to the back, out the back door, and I could not get to her in time to say, please stay. That was one of those discouraging moments. Blanca Goodwin, from, from after first service this morning, said, you know, she said the same thing happened to me the first time. She said, somebody told me that was her seat. She said, but I didn't stop coming. And so I'm glad Blanca didn't stop coming. You know, those are things that happen, and you say, well, how can somebody be that way? I'll tell you how somebody can be that way. I can take attendance when I preach, because you all sit in the same place too. <laughs> it's just part of our nature. But not everything is always encouraging like that. And sometimes when the church tries to be helpful, they get a little bit too clingy. In that first year we were here, I had to have surgery, and I was in the hospital, and, and while I was <laughs> recuperating from the surgery, it happened to fall on board meeting night, and since they didn't want to have the board meeting without me, they brought the board meeting to my hospital room. <laughs> I was way too clingy for my likes. <laughs> but those are, the, those are the rare stories. The, the, the other stories, I, I, wish I, could I wish I could tell you dozens of stories because there are dozens of wonderful people here who have been here for a long time that have made a difference. But I think of Tom Petrie, you know, so, so many people tell us that the building always looks nice, the grounds always look nice, and they do. We have a wonderful maintenance and custodial team who takes great pride in making sure this building is the best it can be. But that all started with a with a man by the name of Tom Petrie who set that tenor years ago because Tom would come up. He was one of our elders, but Tom would come up after teaching school and, and he would work on the yard. He would pull the dandelions. He would fertilize the yard uh, with his own fertilize and fertilizer. And he worked until everything was just the nicest that it could be. And, and that set a standard that we want to do our best because we're representing Jesus Christ. And, and though Tom is at home with the Lord at this point in time, I'll never forget what he, what he did for us. He and Jim France would come up when we were in our first building program. They would clean up the, the, the trash from, from the workers, the construction workers, so that the church didn't have to pay for somebody else to clean up. And they did that with their Saturdays. Charles Van Winkle was an old man when we arrived. And, and yet, I, I didn't realize how spry Charles Van Winkle was. Bless his heart, Charles had this, this little toolbox, and in this toolbox, he had all kinds of wooden uh, screw hole buttons. Do you know what I'm talking about when you have a screw hole and you put a button over it so you can't see the screw? That's what you find in pews and that type of thing. And he had a spool of red thread and a needle, and every week he'd come up and he'd go through every one of the pews at church, and the, and the pews were red pews at that time, and he'd replace all the screw hole buttons that the kids had taken out or had been lost or bumped out. And if there was a tiny rip or tear in the fabric, he'd take that needle and thread and he would sew up that fabric so that the pew would be okay, and then he would sharpen every one of the pew pencils every week. Never ask for any kind of praise, just did it because it was his labor of love. Charles also loved to mow the yard. 
a matter of fact, he helped buy one of our John Deere tractors. He was still mowing the yard when we moved to this facility back in 1993. And he was really an old man by that point in time. And he was out. And Steve Young told me this morning after first service, he said that whenever Charles got on it, he would put it into full throttle and just fly through the yard. Steve finally put a governor on it so he couldn't go so fast. One day, Charles is out here mowing the front yard, and a lady comes into the office, and she is angry, and she reads us the right act. What right do we have to have an old man like that out on a tractor mowing the yard? You people ought to be ashamed of yourself. And we said, you want him off? You go tell him. (laughs) We weren't going to tangle with Charles. We knew that that was an important part of his life and ministry. Such, such were the people that were here that have made a difference through the years and why we can celebrate 50 years. You want to know how important encouragement is? Let me remind you. <laughs> when Rebecca, our daughter, was little, her and her friend Lindsay and, and the other kids in the youth group had just finished doing a Christmas musical, and there were cookies and stuff in the fellowship hall down there and, and Kool-Aid and that type of thing, you know. And they, the girls had been in there, and they'd gotten their cookies and Kool-Aid, and we were just getting down the hallway when they burst out through the doors, and we said, oh, you did a good job, girls. Don't thank you, thank you, you know, what parents do. And so they're standing there with us, and then Lindsay looks at Becca, and she says, hey, Becca, let's go back in and get some more compliments. I laughed, and then I thought, you know how true. That's what the church is for, to encourage and build us up, because where else in the world are you going to get what you can get in this body of believers who have in common the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints? You can't put a price tag on encouragement. Let me close with this story. I, I have shared this with you in the past, but you, I, I got I to let you know, this is one of those things that encourages me in, in, on some of the blue days of my life. I like to pick up and read this. I came across this letter several years ago. It was written in the Christian Record, which was published in Indianapolis in 1867. A preacher by the name of William F. Mavity had moved to the Indiana area, southern Indiana, for ministry. As a matter of fact, uh, he, he preached down in the area of where Holiday World is. That would be the biggest landmark I could share with you. And after being in the state for about 18 months, he wrote this letter of encouragement. Quote, I have confined my labors to southern Indiana for motives of benevolence. The churches here are more destitute of efficient proclaimers than any other part of the state. That's not the encouraging part yet, Okay. <laughs> But then he says, But thank God, this dark corner is illuminated by the faithful teaching of B.T. Goodman, Ira and Sylvester Scott, Abner and Lehu Connor, Wood, Mitchell, Lang, McKinney, and Miller, a self-sacrificing band who in devotion to the cause they have espoused would have been an honor to the Grecian heroes who bled and conquered at Marathon. They have no such word as fail in their vocabulary but are worthy to be pleaders of the cause pled by Barton Warren Stone and many others now in paradise. When I read that letter, now 145 years old, it struck me that all of those men were building the churches. Those are the men that established the church where I grew up. 
where my family grew up had it not been for their faithfulness in that dark corner of the state. I don't know if I would know Jesus today. I owe them my life. I owe them my eternity. My great-grandfather was in that list of preachers. He rode 20,000 miles on horseback. He witnessed 5,000 people come to know Christ. I owe them everything because of their faithfulness and because of the footsteps that they left behind. You and I today can celebrate what God has been doing in his kingdom since the very beginning of the church. Now here's the good news. This is why this letter encourages me on the tough days of my life. It's because when I get down, like you get down, I know that if we stay faithful, that what we're doing right now, 100, 150, 200 years, if the Lord tarries, this church and what you've done, will we still make a difference for eternity? That's why it's worth celebrating. The Apostle Peter said it best, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. Are you following Him? Because that's all that matters.